Welcome back to year number two of Behind the Lens. We made it a whole year. We barely started the second year, but th things things are on the technical end here. We're still in flux here today. Uh, but welcome. Welcome to Behind the Lens. For all of our returning listeners after our one-week hiatus last week, welcome back. And to all of our new listeners, welcome. Behind the Lens is just that. We go behind the lens and below the lines. Uh, talking to cinematographers, costumers, editors, producers, actors, of course, authors, uh, screenwriters, uh, people from stage, music, and television. Um, we like to be a full service behind the lens and below the line uh, and give you a little more insight into what you see on the big screen, the little screen, and every other medium that's out there. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias. Uh, some of you know me as Movie Shark DeBlore, website MovieSharkDeBlore.com, uh, film critic for the past 27 years. Uh, yeah, 27 years. God, I feel old. It's my, I go into my 28th year on February 1st. Uh, print online around the globe. Locally, you can find in the Los Angeles area, you can find me in print in the Culver City Observer, Santa Monica Observer. You can find me on Examiner. Uh, International people can also find me on the British Weekly. If there's a British film with British talent or creators involved, British Weekly will be carrying my content. And every week on Behind the Lens, I try and find you some really great guests. This week we have an extraordinary director making her first time narrative feature debut, uh, Liz Henline, uh, a fellow native Philadelphian. We've had a, fluc a, a great flux of those over the past few months but she has a film that is out her first feature other people's children it is a visual delight to watch it is emotional it is evocative um, and we're going to talk to her about that you have you are all familiar with Liz's work uh, anybody that watches television looks at print ads photo shoots she has been a cinematographer and and work and director working on not only rockumentaries and music videos but some of the highest profile cosmetic ads that are out there for mac for l'oreal for maybelline um, everybody looking really pretty she's the one making them look pretty so we're going to talk to liz about that and as well as about other people's children uh we're also going to hear more before the year wrapped up you heard some excerpts of Quentin Tarantino, what he had to say about The Hateful Eight. Today we're going to dig deeper behind the lens with The Hateful Eight and some of the wonderful artisans that helped bring this masterpiece to life. Because trust me, when I, if you haven't seen it yet, trust me when I say it is a masterpiece. Uh, and it is one of my favorite films of... 2015 and definitely one of my favorites going into 2016 but before we move into that um we have been we've been hit with some sadness in the industry recently with the passing of legendary cinematographers haskell wexler and vilmos zygmunt 
I was lucky enough over the years to have met both gentlemen and spoke with them on many occasions socially and in an interview context. Um, they are true icons. They are part of the true history of cinema and cinematography. Uh, and they, Haskell was uh, age 93, Vilmos age 85. They were both working on projects uh, when, they, when they passed away. So um, they will be sorely missed, but we will have their works to cherish forever. Uh, also, on a personal note, one of our favorite guests, um, Chris Mulkey, who serenaded us live here on the air. Um, our condolences go out to Chris on the passing of his wife, the wonderful actress uh, of stage and screen, Karen Landry. Uh, Karen passed away this weekend. So, and Chris is such a dear friend to us that I just want to, you know, give, give that small acknowledgement for him. But we had some big news this morning. Well, okay, the big news has been the, the Star Wars Force Awakened crossed the billion-dollar box office globally. We knew it. We all knew it. Now all the financiers out there have to accept it and believe it. Um, and we're just counting. I think we're day 507 to Star Wars Episode Eight. Brian, do you know? Are we down to five? Is it 507 days or 506 days to Star Wars Episode Eight? I'm I'm so terrible at. I know the second one or the not the second one. Yeah, the eighth one comes out 2017, right? Yes, but counting down the days, I think we're 507 days till it comes. I'm gonna out. look it up right now. No, no, I'll give it. Okay, okay, good, good. But this morning, the Ace Eddie announcements, uh, the best uh, best in editing, the the Ace Eddie Awards. For the best editing in television, film, and documentaries uh, were announced. And I have to give a huge shout out, Steve Marioni, for The Revenant. Now, we're going to be talking about The Revenant in detail next week. I sat down with Steve to talk about his editing process on the film. Uh, and for those of you that have seen the film, it's going wider this week. Um, so those of you that haven't, I can't encourage you enough to go see it. But uh, you'll hear what Steve had to tell me about cutting The Revenant next week. But today, let us, let us bask in the glory that is The Hateful Eight. Let me interrupt you here real quick. Yes. Uh, we have a uh, Star Wars update. Yes. 507 days, 12 hours, 53 minutes, and 5 seconds to go. All right. I think we need to keep that counter going. You know, I'm going to bookmark it. We're going to have this up until it comes out. Okay. That's, that's only fair. So I was right. My brain was functioning. Alzheimer's has not set in. New Year's hangover has not set in. Okay. We're doing good here. So, but since today is, they did announce the Ace, uh, the Ace Eddie Awards for Best Editing, the 66th Annual, you know, let's start with talking about the editing on The Hateful Eight. Now, briefly, the other week we talked, you know, you all know there are two different versions of The Hateful Eight that are currently out there in theaters. There's the Roadshow version, which is the glorious Ultra Panavision 70 millimeter. Oh, my God, you have to experience this version. Then there is the multiplex version, as it's being called by Quentin Tarantino and by the producers and Weinstein. Now... Obviously, you can't edit them both the same way because with your Ultra Panavision, you're going to have that grander. It's a one two set, a 276 scope. 
It is the widest of the wide. There is nothing wider out there. It allows you to ha to actually have two profile, close-up profiles, full-face profiles, and still have periphery all in the same shot. Clearly, when you cut reduce that to a 35-millimeter image or to a DCP, the digital, digital cinema projection, that's not going to happen. You're going to lose half your screen. So in order to compensate for that with the multiplex version, Fred, editor Fred Raskin, who is no stranger to Tarantino movies, Fred at, actually had to cut. So if you see the multiplex version, which I encourage you to see as well, so you can make your own comparisons, you will see emotional dynamics change in certain scenes because he had to cut with coverage shots because he didn't have the luxury of that huge expanse, especially with scenes, the interior scenes within Minnie's haberdashery. So I had a chance to sit down with Fred, um, who, by the way, is from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, right next door to me, um, went to school, synagogue in Norristown. So he's a hometown boy, too. I told you, we got Philadelphia people all over the place with this show. So I got to talk to Fred, and the first thing I wanted to talk to him about was the grandeur and the flow and the storytelling of what cinema used to be, what 70 millimeter brings, and what that experience, and you see this in Fred's work, it's as if he came out of that era. He has a great gift, and he's very adept at the pacing and the emotional uh, palette that comes with that 70 millimeter process. So I talked to him about that, and here's what he had to say. Truthfully, I think that much of that is dictated by the footage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and I th Quentin shoots in a fairly different style than that of the majority of filmmakers today. Um, you know, he, he only he has the camera. It's, it's only on a dolly or a tripod. Um, he's not using Steadicam. He's not shooting handheld. Um, I think I think that makes you happy at times. Oh, uh, all the time. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> it, it, his, his images are beautiful. They're, like, they're beautifully composed. The, the, the moves are, are, are amazing. I mean, if... Uh, one of the biggest challenges I have is uh, putting his stuff together is there'll be there'll be a moment covered with like two completely different moves that are equally wonderful and it's like all right I gotta choose one of these <laughs> um, but uh, but but I feel like modern Hollywood filmmaking generally is shooting handheld rolling twelve cameras at once. Quentin only rolls one camera at a time. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're, he's never he's never shooting with two cameras. Um, it's it's uh, it, it makes it much more elegant. Mm -hmm. um, it, in, in certain ways, it makes like things can become a little trickier um, because sometimes he'll find a performance through the course of shooting it over and over again, and uh, and and so we'll be locked into something. But uh, I'll take that. To, to 12 cameras worth of, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, completely erratic material. Um, um, yeah, so, so I, I think the, the, the classical way in which he shot the movie dictated how the movie was going to be edited. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he's got a very, he's got a tremendous ability to pre-visualize how mm -hmm. his material is going to come together. Um, mm -hmm. He really knows. And uh, so, you know, I feel like I feel like my job is to 
present his vision as best I can. And if I find any interesting little flourishes, something like something neat that, that I might be like, that might not have been what he was intending, but I think is absolutely in his style mm-hmm. um, or like is going to be in, in keeping with his sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like I'll try stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's something that Sally kind of told me uh, was that Quentin, he he likes he likes having these uh, out of the box ideas that but he'll like he'll try something once mm-hmm. like like for the, the the best example I can give is uh, Uma in Pulp Fiction um, saying don't be a square like that thing yeah. like when she, she draws it only happens once in the movie um, it's it's almost random but it's but, indelible yeah exactly and he doesn't repeat it he doesn't like it doesn't get overused um, and so it's kind of looking for a moment like that. Um, that uh, where, where we can do something like that that's that's kind of the fun of, of working with his stuff mm-hmm. I, I feel like despite how classically he's shot everything his stuff really does lend itself to out of the box ideas yeah and with Quentin it's those out of, out of the box ideas and the beauty of the classicism of how he designs and constructs a film it's a beautiful dichotomy and the juxtaposition is absolutely perfect so for a guy like Fred, how do you approach the cutting of Hateful Eight? Now, some of you may recognize Fred Raskin's name. Fred cut, uh, Guardian, uh, cut uh, Guardians of the Galaxy for James Gunn. Obviously, totally different kind of film, totally different formatting, totally different energy. He did do Django. He has done the Kill Bills. But he also had just finished cutting Bone Tomahawk, which also starred Kurt Russell, which also gives you an idea of Fred's abilities as an editor when you see him cutting the same actor in a similar genre, but very distinctively. So his approach for Hateful Eight. And one of the things that we did differently on this movie um, uh, than than, uh, I've done really on anything else is that is that on a weekly basis we were screening the edits in 70 millimeter so my assistants were conforming the work picture to match the cut in the avid um so we could see how it's actually playing in 70 um and so we would frequently i mean look you're looking at this one to two seven six frame um that is just beautifully composed and because of the size of the image you can see the depth of the performances in the action, in the actor's eyes um, without needing to punch in on the actor. And you've never um, gotten to experience that before. Um, uh, no, not, not not like this. This was this was pretty unique. Um, and, uh, and and so frequently, the challenge is when do we want to cut to something else? And and if we're going to cut to something else, how can it be the most impactful? Um, how can it be as impactful as we can make it? Um, it's we got to have a reason to do it, um, because why would you want to disrupt this shot? It's interesting, actually, in the so in the roadshow version of the movie, the seventy millimeter version of the movie, which is what you saw. There's a sequence um, fairly early on in Act Two where Daisy plays guitar, mm-hmm. um, and it's about a four and a half minute long shot. Um, where we see her playing the guitar, we see people coming in the door behind her, a whole little scene plays out behind her. Um, and 
and and we knew when we watched it projected like wow this really holds like this we don't actually need to to like Quentin shot coverage on that scene but we didn't need to use it um, in in the, the the 70 millimeter version of the movie interestingly enough there is a what we're referring to as the multiplex version of the movie which is the digital cinema version okay. um, we did use some of the coverage for that scene um, in that version because if it's not in 70 and it's not at that level of clarity You're missing. Um, well no no we're no, no actually uh, the, the 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 digital version is, is letterboxed okay um, so we're not we're not the, the frame won't be changing but it was just seeing... The, you're not going to see the image that big right. in the digital version. And uh, and so we had the opportunity to use some of that coverage that Quentin shot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think one version is better than the other. Um, it's just that the 70 version gave us the opportunity to hold as long as we wanted. Mm-hmm. Whereas the digital version, we were able to mix it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Another very impactful sequence within The Hateful Eight which is personally one of my favorites, and as I found out, one of Fred's is the now infamous piano scene with Demian Bashir playing Silent Night. And this is a very interesting cut and development of the action that was going on, the emotional tone at the moment, and how Fred cut this scene. For very specific reasons, you really only see Major Warren, General Smithers, and Chris Mannix during that sequence. You don't see any of the other characters. And I don't think you're really aware of that as you're watching it. Mm -hmm. You find out why at the beginning of the next sequence after the intermission. Um, But um, uh, so, so a lot of it was, you know, the sequence is, the, the scene is primarily taking place between Warren and Smithers. Um, And it's getting Smithers' reactions to what Warren is saying and what's at what point will will enough be enough and Smithers has to do what he has to do. Um, And, of course, the way that Quentin has shot the flashbacks, Mm -hmm. um, integrating into, like, uh, I I love the moment where uh, Smithers' son speaks with Sam's voice. um, And and, and we go back to Sam telling the story. um, And I I love when we're cutting between, like, Sam's hand grabbing the head and then we're in, in, in the flashback and then Sam miming it in, in the present. Um, uh, like, in all of this, uh, uh, for the most part, it was, it was, it was by design. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I, just, I just think it comes together beautifully. And one of, one of the things that I really love about that sequence um, is that it's indicative of something that kind of runs through the whole movie, which is... You don't actually know if Major Warren is telling the truth. Um, he 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 could be making this whole thing up. Um, and there is one the, like there's one school of thought that says, well, if we see it, then it probably happened. And there's another school of thought that says it's so kind of ridiculous the way it's presented with like <laughs> Smithers' son in the snowshoes, um, like that. It couldn't have happened this way. Like, so, so I love the ambiguity of it. I, mm-hmm. I love that when that sequence ends, you really don't know if he's just messing with him um, or, or if it actually happened. Um, and both versions are equally effective for different mm-hmm. reasons. And for those of you that haven't seen, haven't seen the film or don't remember who played who, 
Sam Jackson is Major Warren, Bruce Stern is General Smithers, and Walton Goggins in the performance of his entire career is Chris Mannix. So that's just a little tidbit of some of Fred's thoughts on editing The Hateful Eight. And there will actually be more of, of his interview up on my website and on YouTube as part of interview exclusives, hopefully sometime this week. But with a Quentin Tarantino movie, very important is your producer. Because as everybody knows, Quentin Tarantino is a perfectionist. He knows what he wants and he wants what he wants. Somebody has to help execute that. That falls on the producers. And in this case, Richard Gladstein, who is one of Quentin's longtime producers, uh, was at the helm here for The Hateful Eight. And I had to ask him about how do you make it work for Quentin? Do you let him do it? Do you tell him no? What happens? Well, it's not really letting Quentin do it. It's, um, it's Quentin saying, this is the way I would like to shoot this movie. And us providing the arena that it will work. Mm -hmm. The lenses will work in snow and in altitude. Mm -hmm. The lenses will capture the image that you want. So it's really the um, letting him. There's no such thing. <laughs> it, it's more um, Going along supporting for the ride. him so that he can, he can do it and it will work. Mm -hmm. Because he has his sights on, he sets his sights on certain things. Yeah. For example, he said, I'm not shooting this movie on a soundstage, okay? I'm not, okay? If, if that's the way we're going to do it, I'll do it in a 99-seat theater off of Santa Monica Boulevard, and it'll probably be better that way. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to do it, then this is the way I need to do it. I need to go to the side of a mountain and build Minnie's haberdashery, and um, I want to see out the windows, and I don't want to see a building, um, which means base camp has to not be visible, right. which means we have to truck people up a little bit. So all of these things that Quentin <laughs> wants create, um, that he wants to capture on film, we as producers need to figure out a way to do that so he can have that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, um, and, and it's effective, and we can actually shoot the movie mm -hmm. that way. So, and but Quentin's enormously practical. Like, I don't know if he would ever do the, I'll only shoot at magic hour thing, you know, like mm -hmm. the sort of Terry Malick uh, version of making a movie. Like, he, I think Quentin wants to do too much work in a day that he would say that the only thing that's important is the light. Yeah. So I'm only shooting, but he will say, I'm not shooting outside unless it's snowing. Mm -hmm. Because you're not making snow. Yeah. And pretending it's snowy. Why? Because the sky doesn't look the same when it's not snowing. So you're going to have snow falling, mm -hmm. and you're going to have blue sky in the background? You know, that doesn't make any sense. So he's practical, mm -hmm. but it, there needs to be a level of authenticity mm -hmm. for him to be able to do what he does, or he won't do it. Yeah. So we we there were certain parts of our movie that we needed to shoot on a soundstage for. Mm -hmm. And so we did, but we refrigerated that soundstage to um, a temperature of around 35 degrees. We pumped in humidity because without humidity, you don't see breath. And that is a very key factoid 
that comes into play with the making of The Hateful Eight and the authenticity factor that Quentin rises to. And it was also something that production designer Yohai Taneda had to incor- also help had to think about and incorporate when he was when he designed Minnie's haberdashery, uh, the interior and the exterior, which is a beautiful job. And some of you uh, may know uh, Yohai's work not only from Flowers of War, Man of Tai Chi, but some animated films like Ghost in the Shell or When Marnie Was There. And there's a new film coming up from China, the number one top-grossing film of all time in China called Monster Hunt. Uh, that is a blend of animation and live action, and Yohai Taneda did all of the production design on that. So for another example of his fine work, uh, I encourage you to see that when it opens the end of January. But getting back to the Hateful Eight and Richard here, you know, talking about the breath and pumping in cold air, there's some really interesting factoids you learn about shivering and cold and breath and air. Well, it's real. We're not yeah. enhancing. The only thing we did to enhance the breath is before the actors um, start the scene, mm-hmm. we gave them either tea or coffee or warm water. Yeah. Because when your lungs have that, this is, these are all the things you find out and you become an expert at while producing a movie, are these random crazy things. But if you drink something warm, and you're in that temperature and there is that humidity, you will see your breath. If you don't drink the warm thing, you'll have less breath. Right. So we would go, okay, war, you know, tea up the actors, and someone would come and they would drink tea or coffee, mm-hmm. something warm, because it created a little bit more breath. Mm-hmm. But you have to have cold and humidity or you don't see breath. Right. So for all you producers out there that are thinking of shooting winter scenes, please bear this in mind so that when I review your films, I don't have to sit there and write. It's Christmas. You're shooting it in August. Everybody's bundled up, but I see no cold breath, no humidity, no nothing. Please get a refrigeration unit and have your actors drink hot tea. But Richard has a really great outlook as a producer, and he is so experienced and so accomplished uh, and efficient at what he does. So I ask him, you know, a lot of people, they must talk to you, you know, wow, you're a producer, what do you do, what do you do, what's it like to be a producer, especially a producer on a, on a Quentin Tarantino movie. So, I ask, I ask Richard Gladstein, so, what, if I'm asking you for the first time, what does a producer do, what would you tell me? People often ask, like, why do you have a producer? Like, what does a producer do? And um, I think, um, the way I've explained it to some people, um, you know, on that, like, airplane chatter, you know, mm-hmm. when you're sitting down next to someone, they go, what do you do? And you have a film producer, they go, well, what does that mean? What do you do? And uh, I find that um, there's only a couple of people on the movie that always have the whole movie to consider. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the costume designer has the whole movie to consider, but they are only focused on the look of the costumes, okay? Yes, they have to tell a story. Yes, they have to build a character, but... Uh, the movie can't be all about the costumes, okay? The movie can't be all about the stunts. The movie can't be all about any one thing. Yeah. Except for the story. I mean, that's the only one thing that the movie has to be about. Everything has to service that. And uh, so it's one of the things that a producer helps the director to achieve is 
where you can't do you're making a movie you're not making a documentary you're not recreating you, you are recreating real life it isn't real life you have to mm-hmm. shoot out of order you have to go to distant locations you have to shoot the end before the beginning you have to this you have to that right mm-hmm. well where are you going to make compromises and where are you not and I think that's where Quentin is an absolute and total genius because he will make compromises into what he wants like if Quentin could he would shoot the movie entirely in order from scene one to scene to the last scene any director would and he wants to shoot as much in continuity as humanly possible but sometimes the exigencies of production tell you that you might be shooting yourself in the foot to not jump to scene 47 because it's snowing outside like let's go out and do that yeah and you're only on scene 15 and um Quentin is expert at prioritizing because he, if he has 20 things to do, the, the top 10, he will not make one compromise on. The next five, he'll make a little compromise on. And the last five, he can do in five different ways. So um, he's expert at this is what's important to me. And if you're not on that wavelength, you're not on the movie. Right. And thankfully, Richard Gladstein is on Quentin's wavelength and is on his films. But we're going to shift it up a little bit here. And I am so thrilled to welcome my very first guest of 2016, my fellow native Philadelphian, Liz Hinline. Hi. Hello, Liz. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I, so you're from Philadelphia as well? Oh, Yes. Oh, um, yes. What part? Pardon? What part? Uh, Plymouth Meeting, Norristown. Fantastic. Right next to the Plymouth Meeting Mall. I get it. Philly chicks are cool. Hey, do we know, we know everything. <laughs> exactly. Not everyone knows that we know everything, but we do know everything. We do know everything. You know, mm-hmm. we all knew that Chip Kelly needed to go and be gone from the Eagles, and they won yesterday. Right. We all know how great it is to watch a mummer's parade. <laughs> In the freezing cold. Yeah. In the freezing cold. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I grew up on that. Oh. Well, yeah, my dad worked for Channel 6 for until he died and covered mm-hmm. all of them. And then when it switched to PHL, my brother is now the engineer at PHL handling the, the parades. Wow. So wow, that's great. Philadelphia's big on tradition. Mm-hmm. Just like turning out great filmmakers i gotta say liz i am visually i'm enthralled by other people's children thank you thank you that's so great to hear it is so beautiful one frame is as beautiful if not more beautiful than the last you make beautiful wonderful use of slow motion um you've got these montages in there that have this gorgeous ethereal look to them and your use of color and light just this is all about the visuals create your emotion here and it is stunning to look at thank you so much exactly that's that's um well that's as you know it's a lot of my background is coming from um being a commercial director and mainly i've been a beauty and fashion commercial director so i'm very attuned with that Mm -hmm. um and i'm also went to the american film institute 
uh, to get my master's degree as a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. Well, it definitely shows, which begs the question, why didn't you do your own cinematography? (laughs) Um, Oh my God, that I probably would want to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> because as I'm what as I'm knowing, because I know you you have a cinematography background, and I'm like, why didn't she? Why didn't she just do double duty like Erickson Core does on his films? And I, I mean, maybe I mean this. It's also um, I had a wonderful cinematographer partner who had gone to AFI as well, so we were speaking the same language. And I camera operated on like a like a fun B, like all the intimate like shots of I don't know like someone scratching their neck or something mm-hmm. is <laughs> you know is like not my stuff. But um, uh, it, it, I also love collaboration. I mean that's why I'm a filmmaker. Let's say not a painter mm-hmm. um, because there's such um, creativity and excitement. At least for me, when I work with people that I think are just bomb at what they do for example my costumer um Mm -hmm. was just clever and creative and and it all comes from story it's not like we're trying to just make Mm -hmm. stuff that looks cool it was just really motivated by creating a world so a bit of a more magical realism world um for this for where it was all set how did this script come to you? I know Adrian Harris wrote it. How did it find its way into your hand, and what made this the right property for you to make your feature directorial debut? Well, it was. I was introduced to Adrian Harris and the uh, my other and the lead actress Cyan Marshall Green, who is our my other producing partner on the project, through another producer, um, and. There's a, there's a couple things at play, um, I think, with this project is that uh, it wasn't my story, but I felt that I could bring a lot of, like, emotionality to it, especially through the visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was drawn to, like, um, you know, the characters and, and, and also the, the plight of being a creative and being a woman, which is sort of where I was going with with Sam and, and, and dealing with narcissistic humans that shut you down in the universe, mm-hmm. let's say men. Um, and, <laughs> and how, what, and what does that feel? What does that emotionally, that, that shut down feel feeling look like? Um, so I was drawn to that. And then the, the other thing was, you know, films are so challenging to get off the ground and they're so, um, a little bit as a filmmaker, you can be get, you get into get in the pie in the sky and be you know writing forever and ever or doing a project forever and ever. And I really wanted to um, almost prove to myself that I could do it mm-hmm. coming from a commercial directing background. And so when all those sort of ducks in a row worked, it's like let's just go for it. You know, that's what as opposed to sort of waiting for the perfect project. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say that the triumvirate of yourself, your DP, Edward Button, and your editor, Eugenio Richer, oh my God, it is a perfect triumvirate for what we see on screen. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we worked, I, I really worked, uh, worked a lot with wonderful people 
as well as you know, I'm also excited about the other, uh, like the sound design, the music. Mm-hmm. All oh, the Mac, levels of music Mac Wales! Mac Wales music is beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. He's a real, he's a real talent and like a, and, and amazing at that. And we had also excellent musicians like Tim Norwood, who's the lead singer of OK Go, who is a had a cameo in the film, and he wrote two songs for the film. Mm-hmm. And Allison Sudol, who's now a becoming a very successful actor, um, was a musician before and also wrote, um, and that came in the film and wrote a song for the film as well. Mm-hmm. Now, because of the the very visual nature of the film, were you editing as you went? Were, you know, how was this process on set in, in designing this construct for you? Well, you know... This, we shot this in 15 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was more about, can we get it? <laughs> how, how do we get this? How do we get a whole story in 15 days without, like, like killing ourselves? And, you know, it was, it, was a, it was pretty much a monumental feat because it's obviously not just shot in one location. It's mm-hmm. all over the place. Um, with all this art direction and all this. And I, I think that what I kept gearing towards my... my concept with the at least the look of the film was to to try to get something try to get some humanity and some poetry to Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and because I always I come from the east coast I went to undergrad at NYU and everywhere you put a camera out in New York it's it's gorgeous it's poetic Mm -hmm. there's the old Italian ladies on the stoop there's you know the fashion designer walking you know a French poodle there's all this stuff in L.A., there's not that. That's, you're absolutely and I right. Sh- you know, the script is an entourage. So I was, it was, a you know, <laughs> how do we give poetry, emotionality, and almost like a sense of timelessness to Los Angeles, which um, I guess those were the questions I kept asking every day. And that's combined with the visual style to, to, to give something to, to elevate um, elevate the plot what we were you know what we were mm-hmm. watching well and and you do that so well because for those that, that don't know about the film yet if you were in new york i hope i hope people saw it over the weekend mm-hmm. um and i know it's it comes out on vod tomorrow people so yeah you yeah. definitely want to put this in your queue everywhere uh but it's a story a young filmmaker problems with her father who's a world-renowned artist a mother that we don't see is a world-renowned author she is a film wants to be a filmmaker and a photographer in her own right and stumbles onto a project more or less i think a cathartic nature um of street kids and gravitates towards one in particular pk played by chad michael murray who gives one of the finest performances of his career Uh, thank you yeah it is I mean, he, the last time I talked, I talked to Chad for Fruitvale Station, a small but significant part in that. And it was something totally that no one had seen from him before with great gravitas. And then he did Cavemen, which was, you know, funny and ridiculous. But now, and here, very serious, very hard line. But there's a great heart that's hidden underneath this veneer he creates. And is a wonderful testament to your direction. To bring to bring this forth in him. Thank you. We were, you know, we were very 
pleased to work with him, and he really delivered. Yeah. Um, and basically, that was a challenging role to play. I don't want to give it away to your fans, but to, to, you had to play the, uh, sort of multiple characters at the same time. Yes. Yes, and he did, for those people, that, that all of Chad's fans out there, and I know when I talked to him uh, on the press tour for Caveman, he had just come off losing losing weight, did it very healthy. He, he wanted all of his fans to know that, but he still, he's ripped and he looks fantastic in your film. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think, you know, it's interesting that... Uh, there's a, there's a whole level, at least in Los Angeles, of and we've also like couch surfer kids. They're not necessarily like runaways. They're right. sort of like they like to live off the grid. And so as we were doing this film and and trying to like ha- we have real homeless kids in the film. They're playing homeless kids. As I was well. going to ask you, yeah. But I mean, they're not home. But quote unquote, I keep saying homeless, but they really aren't homeless. They're couch surfers. These were musicians that just don't want to live anywhere mm-hmm. and they were purposely making that choice mm-hmm. um and so it was interesting when i kept looking around even after shooting the film at how the kids were in los angeles they looked exactly like the kids in my movie like they all have they all seem to have like a i saw some hot couch surfing guys <laughs> I was like, oh, there's PK. <laughs> walking down the street there he is on look look brea To, I mean, the film is populated from your production design, the art direction, the costuming, and your actors, be they professional actors or professional couch surfers. It is so authentic. It, it resonates with a palpable vibe of life. And that's not something in a film of this nature, you don't normally expect to find that. And that was a really nice surprise for me that I felt that. And as the film progressed, it just grew on me more and more. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's um, really so, like satisfying as a filmmaker to hear that. Um, because you want it to jump off the screen, basically. And you want to have images that, you you know... When you think about films, typically you, you'll think in images. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily hear the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Maybe a Woody Allen film, but, you know. Um, so I wanted to have people to have things that were embedded in them. Mm-hmm. And something that helps embedding is so much your costume, but also your use of color. Mm-hmm. You, you pick certain moments to make these, these eye-popping visual statements of a burst of color with a lone figure in front of it or a burst of color in the background with, you know, edged or rimmed in a fade out to a a black. And it's very impactful, really, really stunning imagery with that color because it draws your eye in, but at the same time, your positioning of it it draws you in and is directing you to the lone figure that may mm-hmm. be in that image. Yes, exa- thank you, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, I was just using all, you know, you have the, your toolbox mm-hmm. as, a, as a filmmaker and what can you do to keep sort of underlying and this was about loneliness, this is about um, decay, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it really was. It really is supposed to be an emotional journey of, of sort of sorrow. <laughs> I hate to say it. It's sort of an emotional journey about sorrow and uh, and what it feels to go through devastation, basically. Mm-hmm. No, that's emotional devastation, and it you've got twists and turns in in the script that we really see that unfold in many circumstances, and never more so than with the character of PK, but also Harrison Thomas's Eddie. Uh, what wonderful. What a performance. Where did you find him? Oh, he he you can underline his name. He's going to be a big star. He really and that was through we had a wonderful casting director, Wendy O'Brien. And she really she she's um casted um it's always sunny in Philadelphia. She casted Sons of Anarchies. She cast Runaways, and she has amazing taste, brilliant taste. So she knew of it, found Eddie, um, and he's done. He's uh, I don't. He's done. He's been on TV shows and stuff like that. Um, but he really. It must have been like what watching a young Pacino is or something. Like you could he, magnetic. Yeah. Is what I only can think about. Yeah, I mean, he just, the camera loves him, and he loves the camera. Yes. And he, this mm-hmm. vitality and energy, even when he's doing nothing. Oh, totally. And he really was evolved into that sort of, that that, that inner anger upset that just has a, a, a lid slightly on it. Mm-hmm. Well, another standout for me was, you cast Alyssa Diaz. Mm, I first met her. I first met Alyssa back when she did Red Dawn for the, my friend Dan Bradley, who mm-hmm. who directed the, that was his first directorial after being a second unit for so many years, and to see where she has come from just a supporting little I'm the girl in with a bunch of guys to really having some shining moments here. She does, and now she's like on a on Ray Donovan. She's really doing it. And and just for you guys to know, she came in, there was another, someone dropped out and mm-hmm. she came in, flew in like in the last moment mm-hmm. and just took that character on. And really I thought was like the emotional heart of the film mm-hmm. of, you know, there's all this, we as adults and how we deal with stuff. But then it's like, how does it affect a child and, and her childlikeness mm-hmm. that she pulled in is just so touching. It was it was this a flight of fancy, a, an emotional whimsy mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. did, I found so enchanting, and to see the depth that she is now is now becoming as an actress is just for me. It, it was a real treat to see Alyssa, a real treat to see her in this particular role. Yeah. Very exciting. So now that you've made this jump, what did you find was the most challenging aspect of going from commercial directing in jumping into this feature film world? Well, I think the question is the, it's a very good question. It's more, it's from into a independent feature film world. I feel like for me, I came from being a coddled commercial director, which I pretty much <laughs> am. <laughs> you know, they fly me, they put me up, they, I go and do my thing, and, and it all works out. And 
and you get a commercial that's for Dove or Revlon or whatever I'm hired to do. Um, and they all love it and it works out. But for this one, I had didn't, I didn't know that the job description of independent filmmaker meant like really you do all the jobs. Um, everything through the direction to all the post-production to all the, I mean, this is a very tiny budget mm-hmm. and, um, we couldn't bring, we couldn't pay for a post-production supervisor. That became me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and little did I know what that job was and, you know, all the deliverables to, you know, we're going out to 35 million homes starting tomorrow with, um, Time Warner and Cox and iTunes and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, one of the things that I am very proud of myself for is that I really de- learned on the job, but, you know, delivered to the to the very end, to the DCP, where it's now in the theater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on a tiny budget, and we didn't really have the quote-unquote father figure, elder statesman or stateswoman, herald, you know, shepherding, the, shepherding the, the, the thing for us. Yeah. I I mean, to look at this film, the production values are high. The emotion is off the charts. I mean, it belies this being your first time as as an independent feature director. Your visuals here are the caliber of your, the high polish coddled commercials (laughs) that you do. Uh, And it's, it's so, it's lovely to see you be able to translate that and bring that and heighten and elevate an independent film. Wow. Thank you. So now, now what will you do? Will you do another independent narrative feature? Will you throw your hat in the ring to direct one of the standalone star Wars episodes? Uh, (laughs) um, I I think I'm having a two prong or a couple prong approach right now. I'm doing a lot of TV meetings Mm -hmm. because I think TV is, great and fun and and they seem to like the idea that i did a feature in 15 days (laughs) and it can look like that with one can with a single camera by the way what Um, camera did you use on this one this is a red camera what lenses did you were you using we use anamorphic um anamorphic lenses on this and an old set of um just right out i'll tell you what it is it just the word went out but we, (laughs) we basically shot this on three lenses wow um, which was a what we could afford, and b I wanted to keep the depth of field, meaning what's in focus and not in focus in the background, consistent. Because mm-hmm. it if it jumps back and forth too much, it, it also takes you out of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely, you know, it was decide to shoot on anamorphic lenses because that's always a good way to make a small film feel bigger. Yep. And also, you ha- you then you're in the world, and it's very becoming also on the actor spaces. Mm-hmm. It gives them a roundness, and and and, and as opposed to a flatness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was what we looked at. So I'm so I'm working um, uh, looking to make the jump this year into TV. I have two feature projects which are much more personal um, driven that um, are I'm in writing stages of mm-hmm. and. And then I'll just be doing my commercials, I imagine. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Liz. I, I am hooked. You've got me hooked. Oh, thank you. I, I just, I really, 
I really love the the emotion of this film and the look of it. And they go then they go in tandem in this film. So many times you can get emotion just from a story, but when you have really a, a really good visual that tells the tells a story and fuels emotion, that I that is a gift, a gift. Thank you so much for that. So I hope I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today on our first show of of year two, um, first guest of the new year. Hip 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 hip, and you know I hope you will come. You will join us again in the future. I would love to. I would love to. This has been like such a lovely experience. I super appreciate it. Thank oh, you. Liz, thank you so much, and we will be in touch. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Bye bye. And that was Liz Hinline, director of Other People's Children. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to our last few minutes of the first show of the new year and the first show of our second year here on Adrenaline Radio. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. So, just finished up with Liz Hinline, director of Other People's Children. It is on VOD starting tomorrow on multiple platforms everywhere. But... Let's get back to Hateful Eight and wrap up the show with that and hear once more from producer Hateful Eight producer Richard Gladstein as, like myself, he is of an older generation where we know we experienced the 70mm road shows in the past, unlike a lot of youngsters who are getting them for the first time. So, and we also are well familiar with the Ultra Panavision lenses that were used. So I had to ask him, about this, the excitement of this venture and the thrill and mystique of the Ultra Panavision. It is as cool as that that Ben uh, Charlton Heston was on the back of a chariot, and these lenses were, you know, ten feet away from him. You know, not replicas of these lenses, the but these lenses, right? And Battle of the Bulge and Khartoum, and it's a mad, mad, mad world. We're shot with these lenses. That's really cool. I mean, that gives me goosebumps. <laughs> okay. What gives me actually bigger goosebumps yes. um, is when I watch the movie, um, we have a 2.76 to 1 aspect ratio, the widest image you can yeah. possibly have, and that hasn't been done in 50 years. And when... We sit in the theater as we have in our previews and as we were cutting, we watched the movie in various various times in 70 to see what we have and all that, when Quentin wanted to show us and share it with us, mm-hmm. um, uh, which wasn't often, but was great when he did. Um, and I watch the movie and I see that wide screen and... I think it is a misnomer that you use wide screen for landscape. 
Of course you do. Lawrence of Arabia looks the way it looks because of how wide those vistas are. But I think the close-ups, when you shoot a close-up on ultra Panavision lenses and you're in somebody's eyes, that the soul of the person is revealed. The other thing is when you do a close-up in this wide of an image, there is necessary because the image is so wide. If you're going to do this, it means that you're going to have this much on the side of the person's. You know, there's going to be this much face if you're this close, mm-hmm. and this much other on either side, depending right. on where you put the face, right? So when well, you could film our conversation and put the camera right there, mm-hmm. and the distance between us. Um, would you couldn't do this shot if you wanted to do this in a in a 1.85 i would have to sit here yeah you couldn't work. do this no okay and when you did this we would be framed to here mm-hmm. okay and if you came in close that you would have no room this you can hold two close ups so you can when damian and sam confront each other and they're both in profile. Mm-hmm. And one is on the left side of the screen and one is on the right side of the screen. You're holding two faces in close-up. Yeah. You can't do that unless your image is this wide. Mm-hmm. So this is not fun and games. This is not, oh, isn't this nostalgic and cool? We are able to create an image that you can't create in another format. Yeah, there's no other way to do it. So it's not just, isn't this nostalgic and isn't this cool? It's just, isn't this brilliant? Mm -hmm. It's really what it is. And it happens to be nostalgic and cool. And nostalgic and cool is exactly what Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight is. Well, we're just about out of time for today. Uh, I want to thank Liz Hinline again for joining us. Um a real treat having her call in today. I was like hearing from my fellow Philadelphians and coming up, I can't wait two weeks from now. We have filmmaker Joe Pepitone who has written and directed one of the funniest films you will ever see. And for those people in the New York, New Jersey, Southeastern Pennsylvania, that tri-state area, the Jersey devil, uh, hell moves to earth and what better place than in New Jersey Um, it is tongue in cheek it is delightful Joe will be here calling in on the 18th next week we've got Judy Chaikin joining us um, director of the documentary The Girls in the Band a fascinating fascinating story uh, that goes back in history of the United States and Judy will be with us as will Arturo Mouchant, who will be talking about a new film called The Pastor. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.